0: So hello, everyone, and welcome to a much-belated episode here on The Sordid Skeptics. Today, we're going to be doing a bit more of a free-form jazz exploration of a number of different topics in an effort to pursue some topics for the future, I suppose. So we're going to dive right into uh, a little bit of a topic on freedom of speech, because today, what we want to talk about is what is worth preserving in Western civilization, because I know... It has its ups, it has its downs, and it has its many critics. So what we want to work through are some of the underlying philosophies that underpin our civilization to try to figure out what it is that's most crucial. And I'm sure there's going to be things that we miss here, so definitely leave a comment below if you have a suggestion for a future episode. So, Tim, are you ready to dive into a free-form exploration on freedom of speech?
1: I'm ready. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: All right. So... One of the reasons that freedom of speech is so important is that it facilitates freedom of thought, because, as Peterson points out, as we speak is sort of how we think, and that's how we can formulate our ideas and our thoughts. So I think if there's any attempt to restrict freedom of speech under the guise of, well, the many attempts like hate speech and all these other nonsense concepts, the erosion of freedom of speech is also an attempt to control thought, in my opinion. Because whoever can dominate the narrative is whoever's going to wield the most power and control. So, Tim, what are your thoughts on freedom of speech? Why do you see it as important? Or should perhaps we get rid of it altogether?
1: (laughs) Well, I think freedom of speech is important because I think we see in our society that if you say something that a certain group might uh disagree with or or deem as like too offensive then it um depending on what the actual thing being said is it's like you said it it constricts the ability to think and also also to maybe joke about things as well and uh you know if we don't have freedom of speech, then we don't have the ability to creatively think about things and also possibly say what's most important, even though it might go against some some narrative or something like that.
0: Yeah, and I think you touch on something important there, which is the idea that if a certain group of people, any group of people or even an individual, were to find speech offensive the conflation of that with this idea of hate speech where it's like i hate what you say therefore what you say is hateful it's kind of this weird cart before Mm -hmm. the horse kind of of logic (laughs) i don't really know how people get to this idea where it's almost like a like a projection almost right Where it's like they hate what you're saying so much they convince themselves that what you're saying must be hateful towards other people but then they take it a step further and sort of say well not only is it hateful towards this other group of people it's also an incitement to violence towards this other group of people and then you'd be like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. hold on a second i just said i don't like this particular flavor of ice cream i'm not <laughs> i'm not saying go out and kill anybody they're like well yeah, yeah but yeah it, it could be construed as perhaps this incitement to violence against people who share that same skin color as that ice cream and you'd be like yeah but those people would be fucking retarded right like who would make that connection right it's like oh my god that guy that guy doesn't like that color of ice cream he he's instructed me to go do violence against people i'm gonna go do it it's like who thinks this way
1: seems like there's a lot of jumps in logic a a
0: little bit there yeah (laughs) it's like i don't know anyone who has been incited to violence on you know the whimsical idea of one person Mm -hmm. It, Mm -hmm. it takes a lot more than that you know you need a First of all, a a victim group to project your hate against is always a good idea. You know, you need to have some economic turmoil. You know, a little bit of hunger doesn't go uh, amiss. You know, devaluation of the currency, all these other kind of things. Serious economic strife that can drive people towards attacking another group of people. But if everyone's doing fine, you know, they're just going to go tell you to piss off because it sounds stupid. You know what I mean? But you get people angry, you get people hungry, pissed off, like. These ideas can take uh, some serious hold, but the conflation of that process with, say, the expression of a joke, like you mentioned, seems a little ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and it's to me, it's like, how far do you go to control people and what they say? Like, how do you... Who, kind of who becomes
0: the regulator of speech yeah because that's that's the million dollar question right and it's always the people who are complaining They're like if it was me regulating speech we would finally bring about our utopia it's like yeah sure <laughs> exactly sure if, if that's what you want to think that's probably one of the most dangerously arrogant ideas
1: you could imagine you
0: know mm-hmm. what i mean it's like yeah if you were the benevolent dictator everything would just work out right
1: <laughs> yeah and to me when i when i think about this stuff i think about like it being like offensive to like wish people a Merry Christmas or something like that. Yeah, that's know? probably gonna make a comeback around this time of year.
0: I'm just, <laughs> just just waiting for the articles to come out, just reminding people. By the way, just make sure you say Happy Holidays, because remember, there's a bunch of other stuff this time of year, and it's like, yeah, we we, we get that too. And if we know what they celebrate, we'll wish them whatever that yeah. is. But for the most part, we all celebrate Christmas, so that's what we're gonna say. Yeah, but you might offend somebody <laughs> and, then, and then incite them to Christmas violence, and it's like, no.
1: No, that's <laughs> let's just say. It. Don't forget to put up your holiday tree. Yes, your holiday tree with all of your holiday lights and your holiday songs. Yeah, this
0: this thing with that. uh What was that? Baby, it's cold outside. You've been following this whole controversy. Um, can you? Um, this that song where it's like the guy is yeah. like, "Oh, baby, it's cold outside." Yeah. You know, like I I haven't heard the song enough, but I'm familiar, you know, with the yeah like the song. and it's, it's been around for, for decades right and it's like all of a sudden now we've realized that it's offensive and it's like okay you know people. why is
1: it brought up now <laughs> yeah
0: well i mean people just are running out of things to complain about so yeah
1: they, yeah yeah
0: so they feel they have to complain about this and i guess they figure it's like oh okay well if we can just take this one song off the air it's like okay well what about all the rap music what about all these other genres of music that could be construed as offensive as well like what are we going to become the music police like Mm-hmm. no it's i think it's getting ridiculous
1: and yeah i mean and the thing is with freedom of speech it it supports like meaningful conversations with people like it's mm-hmm. order in order to learn something from each other because if we're if we're restricted by certain parameters um then it just it, it restricts our conversation, our, it a a conversation yeah. <laughs> and restricts our ability to think. Yeah, like in in, uh, in the problem solve and and to make mistakes, which is okay. Like we don't have to have <laughs> perfect speech in the process yeah. of trying to The you right know, to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. So ex- to speak.
0: And that's fine. I mean, you gotta be able to explore these ideas. I mean, the idea that if you just sort of suppress them, they'll go away is kind of silly. You know what I mean? What was it? Mm-hmm. They said uh, you mm-hmm. know, people don't have ideas, ideas have people
1: hmm
0: so it's like exactly. you can you can try to get rid of all the people you want and they've tried you know i mean look at the 20th century you know a bloodbath like look at east berlin i mean you want to talk about stifling the conversation to th- like a third of the population was informants for the government so i mean if you're in a family of six two of them are probably going to inform on you right so right. so what do you think you talk about around the dinner table you probably talk about how you know, how great everything is right? <laughs> you, <laughs> don't, you don't want to be ratted out by your fucking little sister or some shit right it's uh
1: yeah yeah Or like, Uh, could you imagine back when it was Soviet Russia?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole, whole same, it's the same system of thinking, right? It's an authoritarian top-down control, which doesn't seem to really work. I mean, it seems like uh, freedom is a good answer for that.
1: Absolutely.
0: So I think that's a pretty good overview on uh, freedom of speech. And I think it transitions nicely into another principle that I think it's very important for us to discuss, which is the non-aggression principle. So what this principle basically entails is that you shall not initiate force against someone else. It's like, Mm. can we at least all agree on that? If (laughs) if we can agree on that, everybody would just stop attacking other people. But therein lies the problem, right? Because people do attack other people. So how does this seemingly pacifistic principle work? It's like, well, if somebody attacks you, you can probably attack them back. I mean, that doesn't sound too unreasonable to anybody. Self-defense. Self defense. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. But it's like, don't be the person who initiates it in the first place. Just don't Man. be that guy. I think we can all agree that's a good idea. Mm.
1: Don't throw bricks at people. <laughs> we shall not
0: throw stones, regardless of our glass houses, right? Just nobody should throw stones.
1: Yeah, yeah, all. and it also um, ties in with with parenting mm-hmm. as well, which is something Stefan Molyneux. Yeah, not a, the uh,
0: yeah the uh,
1: non-aggressive parenting. Mm-hmm. Oh. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, peaceful parenting, peaceful parenting. That yes.
0: was, it was a way catchier phrase. That's Sorry, correct. Mr. Molyneux. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the non-aggression principle, I think also expands out uh, at least how I've seen it explained on the internet, <laughs> which is, uh, it also translates into uh, force, threats and lies. You know what I mean? So don't initiate force against people. Okay. That makes sense. Don't initiate uh, threats of force against people because it's sort of the same thing right mm-hmm.
1: you know what i mean
0: mm-hmm. it's like if i rob you at gunpoint is it not violence because i didn't shoot you no that doesn't really make sense right so threats of force i think we can include in there
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then lies which would include fraud so i mean don't initiate lies against other people mm-hmm. you know what i mean you might not know the truth 100 but at least don't intentionally lie i think we can all agree that's a good idea if everybody did that that needle might move just a little bit towards the good
1: right yeah yeah um and this ties into freedom of speech because we've we've witnessed speakers and uh groups like antifa who Mm -hmm. initiate violence in in crowds because of speakers they don't agree with that are like speaking on campuses or or whatnot it is
0: an unusual self-fulfilling prophecy with the antifa types because it's like your speech is going to cause violence so we're going to show up and cause violence and blame your speech yeah. for it it's like see we were right it's like what the what the hell <laughs> like
1: yeah yeah oh, exactly man. and also they were like crowding around tucker carlson's house and like yeah
0: that was pretty nuts man it's like yeah. his wife and kids are in there and all this earth. I don't know, I think his wife was, I don't know if his kids were, but still, it's like you show up at the guy's house because he hosted, like, a Fox News show, like, Fox News isn't even that extreme, man, like, it's not, yeah,
1: exactly,
0: but I mean, like, even if it was, like, why would you show up at his, at his house to to protest, (laughs) what, his opinion? Like, give me a break, man, that's,
1: you know, it's
0: it's the tolerant left, you know what I mean? The (laughs) ever-tolerant left, but, uh, yeah, the non-aggression principle, I think, is important because it's, it seems like it's a very easy to universalize principle. Like I don't think of any time and circumstance where people would probably be better off not following it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what I, I mean? Agree.
0: I agree. It's like if people are initiating force, threats, lies against you, fine. You can respond in kind, but don't be the person to initiate that. And if uh, and if possible, maybe just don't be the person to retaliate with it if you can. <laughs> just keep, <laughs> don't keep that cycle going. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that moves us on to the. Uh, The notion of free markets, you know, I think the West was instrumental in creating this idea of free markets, like, you know, back when it started in Venice with the merchants and all that. I mean, that system kind of got corrupted and fell apart pretty quick because it became a little bit too exclusive in a sense. But once you have the ability to just voluntarily transact with people using Mm. a price regulated market, things just seem to work out a lot better than the countries that try to use central planning. You know what I mean? There's like every country that has liberalized markets seems to do really well and all the ones that restrict it seem to do worse or just never really get off the ground to begin with.
1: Yeah. So there's when there's more control from the government to, mm-hmm. um, you know, regulate I, markets, regulate yeah. behavior, this sort of thing. Right. Like you've I, heard of
0: the, the concept of like the first, second and third world.
1: Mm, My understanding
0: of where this came from, and I could be wrong, but when I last checked up on it, the idea was the first world was basically liberalized free markets, right? Capitalist principles, even though capitalism Mm. is kind of a Marxist term, the idea of free markets is separate from the sort of straw man idea of what they call capitalism, which is usually a reference to more like cronyism or crony capitalism, where there's more government and state involvement. But truly free markets would be no interference. You trade whatever you want for whatever you're willing to transact for. You know, and the countries that do have more liberalized markets seem to be doing a lot better than the ones that are, have, are, you know, basically under the boot of the state, which would be the second world, where you'd have this yeah. sort of the communist idea, right? And the third world was basically countries that didn't subscribe to either of these notions. You know what I mean? They okay. didn't really seem to have the liberalized free markets, but they also didn't really seem to have the government either. Right, you know? right. Okay. And we would refer to these as third world countries. So, okay. unfortunately, like a lot of times, the the sort of the state-sponsored merchants would kind of go in and fuck these countries over. And that really turned a lot of the third world countries off capitalism or what they thought was capitalism. So a lot of them turned to communism instead. You know, these right. he- heavily regulated state systems that seem to be completely undermining the free market, like what's going on in South Africa right now where they're going to be seizing land from people. You know, they might, they might not. I mean, they make making proclamations to that effect but, uh, you know, most of the land, when it was uh, repatriated, most of the people that it was sort of to be given to would rather just have the cash instead. You know what I mean? Not yeah, everybody right. wants to be a farmer. It's not an easy job. You of course
1: know? not, yeah.
0: And when you sort of dispossess farmers, you end up with mass starvation, like in the Hollow of mor mm, When the okay. government kind of steps in and says, okay, well, just make sure that all the food from the country gets taken into the cities. And then usually gets left to rot in warehouses because they can't distribute it fast enough because there's no mechanism of price it's all just distributed so no, there's right. no incentives there's no efficiencies none of that stuff so you know most of these uh you know you'd have soviet warehouses that would just be filled with just rotting uh like hides from trappers because they nobody would be buying them because they would all all the prices were centrally regulated so
1: yeah terrible waste
0: That's- yeah but when you have a, a price mechanism that regulates the free market what that tends to do is it tends to send signals to people to either get into a market or get out of it or to load up on a certain product or try to sell it. Mm. You know what I mean? So if the price of something goes up, that means more people will want to get in to try to sell it. And when more people try to sell it, the price goes back down. You know, And then it'll sort of find its own equilibrium. There's going to be people that are like, okay, well, I could just stay in this industry and make a decent return on my investment. You know, But then if somebody comes along with a better product, you either have to compete with that or find something better to do. You know, and this mm-hmm. is a way that keeps quality high and it keeps prices low. Mm-hmm. So it promotes, it can promote innovation. Absolutely it does. Yeah. But you know what stifles innovation is knowing that whatever you invent will just be taken from you. You know, it's like, yeah. well, why would I create a more efficient way to do this? I don't get anything out of it. You know, I just got to show up, do my thing and then kind of go home. You know, like what they said in the, the Soviet Union, we pretend to work, they pretend to pay us. Wow. You know? <laughs> so this is why nothing really gets done, right?
1: Right, right.
0: So, and what, what ties right into these this idea of free markets is private property rights. So this is this is a real, like, once you get down through the levels of these mm. arguments when it comes to dealing with the left and the right and the authoritarian libertarian sides, one of the questions you just really have to get a yes or no answer on is, do you believe in private property rights? And what, what would be the most fundamental element of our private property rights? It would be the ownership over our own bodies, right? If I do something with my hand, mm-hmm. if I were to hit somebody, I can't then just say, oh, that was just my hand. It wasn't me. It's like, well, no, <laughs> you, you own it. Like, because it's part of who you are, right? Yeah, it's so, a
1: responsibility. Exactly.
0: And that's why we also have crimes when you violate other people's bodies because mm-hmm. it's criminal behavior. It's a violation of their private property rights and their person and all this stuff. So if you believe in that, that also extends to that which you create. So if I take my time and I just like, And, you know, harvest a bunch of wood and build a fence. I own the fence because I built it. Mm
1: -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm.
0: Now, when this starts to come into conflict is when we start talking about things like goods and services being rights. You know what I mean? Like, hey, let's say everybody has the right to a fence. It kind of sounds nice on the surface, right? I mean, it'd be nice if we all had fences, frankly. Mm -hmm. They're a good thing to have. So when we start to say that they're a right, that means that if at any time someone doesn't have a fence, their rights are being violated. It's like, well, how do fences come about? Well, it's like someone has to build them. So if they're not building people fences, they're violating their rights. And it's like, okay, now this is starting to sound like a bit of a problem, right? So nobody has the rights to anyone else's goods or services. Does that make sense? Because if you do, then it's basically slavery.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, or also to counter entitlement, I suppose, too, in a way, right? So
0: insofar as that nobody actually has
1: an entitlement
0: to your goods or services. So if you happen to be a very good fence-building Tim, you might build the best fences in all the land, but that doesn't necessarily give anyone the rights to your fences. Right? It's like, well, it would be really nice if everyone had those sweet Tim-built fences, but that doesn't necessarily give anyone the rights to your fences because then basically you're just being cast into sort of servitude where you have to build fences. And that that then... It raises the question of what's the enforcement mechanism? Like, how are we going to force him to build the best fences in the world? It's like, well, I guess we could just put a gun to his head or threaten to throw him in a cage if he doesn't. That would be a pretty good incentive. It's like, okay, well, I think now we're kind of missing the point of <laughs> private property rights.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know what I mean? So, yeah, nobody has the, uh, the right to it. And I think that where this really starts to come out is in the healthcare debate. Where it's like, everyone has a right to healthcare. It's like, okay, well, what specifically do you mean by that? Do you mean everybody has the right to have a doctor? So if you know I go to a doctor's house at two o'clock in the morning and demand medical services, if he doesn't provide it, he's somehow violating my rights, that, that doesn't really sound appropriate. So we have to understand that healthcare is sort of a goods and services sort of market, right? You're looking for the skills and expertise of a doctor. You're looking for the best technology, all of these things are created in the free market, right? So so to sort of say that you have a right to that doesn't really make sense. You have no more of a right to that than you have a right to, you know, the apple orchard's apples or to a car dealership's cars or anything like that. It's the same same principle. But somehow because there's healthcare involved, we kind of get wrapped up in this whole people have a right to it thing. And I think that becomes a very slippery slope it's like, well, yeah, it'd certainly be nice to have. But the second you say we have a right to it, it's like, well, then you're sort of crossing a line, I think. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess people get more wrapped into it because it seems like it's a basic um, a basic means of sur- survival, I suppose. and. Um,
0: In today's day and age, yeah, I suppose you could make that argument. I mean traditionally it wasn't <laughs>
1: we were all kind of left to yeah. the elements i mean that's sort of the default position right right okay
0: you know we kind of live in the lap of luxury at the moment the best humans have ever lived so i can sort of see how people get the idea that we have a right to our current way of life but the, our current way of life is heavily intertwined with the goods and services that other people provide voluntarily at a price
1: for sure um Yeah. Did you want to move on to the next topic?
0: Yeah. So voluntarism. So this is a, a topic that I know Molyneux does discuss quite a lot, and this is basically the idea that interactions that are voluntary are going to be superior to interactions that are co- are coerced, in a sense, right? Like you and I doing this voluntarily would be better than if you and I were forced to do this. I don't know, under a threat of imprisonment, for example. Yeah. So it's going to produce better results overall because people are going to have a system that creates better incentives than if it were to be coercive. And from a moral perspective, obviously, it makes more sense as well. You know, relationships that are voluntary, transactions that are voluntary, sexual encounters that are voluntary. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it just seems to be so self-evident that this is a better way of doing things. Than coercion. I mean, obviously there, there seems to be certain cases where coercion seems to be the only recourse, like in the case of serious criminal offenders. It seems to make sense that we have to coerce them into a cage because otherwise we're all at risk kind of thing. I, th- I think the argument could be made there. I mean, I think it'd be nice if we created a system that didn't generate so many of those people. You know what I mean? And I think that's the million dollar question. How do we how do we do that? Because it seems like, regardless of what kind of Garden of Eden you try to create, there will always be a snake. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think to do things voluntarily, it. I think it produces just better better results as well because it's something that you know the individual actually wants to do rather than having to be forced and having that extra stress or or whatever else. Yeah. I'd look at like
0: the space race of the 1960s between the Americans and the
1: Soviets Mm -hmm.
0: where, you know, you could, you could produce pretty fast results under coercive results and that's how they were able to get Sputnik into orbit so fast. But in the long run, you know what I mean? Getting a man on the moon, all this kind of stuff, like it came down to the voluntary transactions. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can make the argument that NASA is still a government program, so it's not quite as voluntary as we might be led to believe. But it's not like anyone had a gun to their head and said, you have to do this. These are people that wanted to believe in it, and it was just sort of paid for through taxpayer money, which we can we can get into later. But still, yeah. I see what your, your point is, is that, yeah, it does produce better results overall. And even from a moral perspective, it's like, how are you going to justify coercing people to engage in transactions versus those people just doing it of their own accord. I mean, the the moral argument seems to be self-evident that voluntarism would be superior to coercion from a moral perspective. I mean, I guess if we need to clarify that any further, we could go into depth, but does it seem like it's fairly self-evident?
1: Yeah, I mean... So we could preserve
0: that as part of Western civilization, the idea that people should be able to interact voluntarily. But this also creates a number of other problems, right? So the... I guess, the counter-argument, not a great counter-argument, but would be it's like, okay, well, what if you had somebody who just really hated this one group of people and chose to deny his goods and services to that group of people based on that immutable characteristic? And you might think, okay, well, first of all, unless he's kind of coming out in the open and saying that's why he's doing it, nobody can really prove that's why he's doing it. So there's going to be that problem you'd have to get over, first of all. So let's say for the sake of argument, there's a guy who's just like some out-and-out racist who says, I just refuse to serve this one particular community because of these immutable characteristics they have no control over. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I would almost prefer a system in which that guy could say that so that we could all be like, okay, well, maybe let's avoid that guy. But if we try to suppress his right to say that, that behavior might not be allowed to go on unchallenged for a much longer
1: period of time. And it'll go underground. Too. Exactly. And that's the thing. It just sort of drives it underground
0: where he might know. It's like, okay, well, I know it's socially unacceptable to say it. So maybe I'll just sort of ban people that I don't know, wear hoodies or listen to a kind of certain kind of music where I know I'll target that demographic indirectly, but at least I'll be doing it on a category I can't be out and out ostracized for. So the counter to that would be like, okay, well, if all, you know, transactions are voluntary, how do we force that guy to serve that community? And it's like, I think you're asking the wrong question. You know what I mean? Go somewhere else. And eventually Mm. that guy will be driven out of business by all the people who don't really want to be associated with this out and out racist
1: yeah so in a way like the free market the free market oh.
0: will correct that problem eventually i mean it, but the thing is for a lot of people it wouldn't happen fast enough right it's like well this guy yeah. has to be literally like driven out of town like we'll fucking string him up burn him at the stake like we've got to do this shit now and it's like yeah well why why not just kind of let this process go on inevitably as it will and people will say well then you're sort of allowing the racist to continue to exist and it's like what the hell does that mean? We don't allow people to exist. People just do exist. Not necessarily at <laughs> our whim. That sounds a little bit dictatorial. You know what I mean? So I don't know yeah. if uh, once the conversation takes that turn, it might be uh, a <laughs> good idea to check who you're having that conversation with. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. So
0: the next stuff that uh, we have to talk about, because when it comes to living in an entire, entirely voluntary society, what do we do about the rule of law? Right. Because I think the rule of law is something that we can all kind of agree is a good thing. We all kind of bind ourselves to a certain set of rules that we say, OK, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And if we can all agree to that, then we can at least get along without murdering each other. And from there, maybe we can start to trade and do all this other stuff. But at least at the very base level, we've got to agree on a certain set of ground rules. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at like the Old Testament Ten Commandments kind of stuff, you know, thou shalt not kill. I think we can all agree to that. Ties right in with their, with the non-aggression principle.
1: Thou shall not steal.
0: Thou shall not steal, yeah. And yep. I know we're going to get into the taxation stuff <laughs> thing later. But yeah, that's a good one. Let's not steal from each other. Let's not be covetous.
1: Yeah, to, you know, counter a chaotic situation.
0: It is sort of like, yeah, manifesting order, habitable order
1: mm-hmm. from
0: chaos. And that's another distinction I like that Peterson makes where he talks about order that is habitable because order can obviously become tyrannical if you take that process too far so it's like how do we have just the least amount of order necessary to manifest the best kind of chaos and Mm -hmm. that's a tough ass question for sure maybe that's the entire central question of this whole whole show right (laughs) what is the the most habitable form of order that we can generate out of all this damn chaos
1: yeah yeah because
0: my god there's a lot of chaos going on these days man it is uh It's not pretty. Indeed. And you know what? If we're not successful and Western civilization can't be preserved, I don't know what it's going to be replaced with. I mean, hell, it could be replaced with something better for all we know, but it could also be replaced with something much, much worse, (laughs) which seems like the much more likely outcome because, I don't know, it seems like we got a lot of things right and it's a lot easier to break things like that than it is to make them better. So, Mm -hmm. how does one go about enforcing the rule of law? So, I think this is sort of like the idea of, it's like a tool, right? A technology we use to solve particular sets of problems. And in the same way that a hammer is really good for hammering in a nail, it's not the most effective for cutting down a tree. You probably could. It would be better than with your bare hands, but it wouldn't be as good as an axe or a saw. Yeah, it's not the specific. It's not the specific tool for the job. So I think it is a very effective tool, like using the state as an instrument of force to enforce serious crimes like rape, murder, serious theft, stuff like this. That seems to be an effective use of that tool. But the problem is, is once that system becomes corrupted, the rule of law starts to become tyrannical, right? But the state will step in and dictate what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And it goes beyond that whole, let's all agree on a certain set of rules. Now it starts Mm. to be an enforcement of subjective preference, You know, Mm. and yeah, the argument could be made that it'll save lives, but it's like, well, you know, what would also save a lot of lives is, you know, just incarcerating the entire population and putting them into a medically induced coma in a bubble wrapped room. It's like that could probably save a lot of lives, but it's like, well, then what's the point?
1: Right? Yeah, that's the extreme. So
0: taking it's like that whole thing we talked about on the previous episode about virtue, finding that balance between the two extremes. Yeah. You can't just sort of prop one concept up as being like, the be all end all and it's like okay well the more of this we have the better like when people prop up compassion is being this mm. be all end all it's like well you know it's that compassion for like the mother bear has for her cub that when you get between the two of them that's the compassion that will get you mauled to death <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so it's like as a concept yeah i can see your point but when you try to elevate it beyond its purview i suppose you can start running into some serious problems so how do we go about enforcing the rule of law while also maintaining a voluntary society? I mean, I think there is, well, there's volunteer firefighters, you know, that's already covered. And the one thing I did watch, it was this interesting video on how you'd actually go about having a voluntary police force. And it seemed to act more like an insurance company where the insurance companies that you pay to put like for protection, you can pick mm-hmm. from a bunch of different ones depending on what your needs are. And they would have their own enforcement so if someone robs you you would get a cash reimbursement for the valuables plus a certain amount for punitive damages and then the insurance company would go after the criminal oh and, no and way. If they, once they find out who it is which i imagine with technology would become easier they would go to that person's insurance company and bill them for the robbery and then that person's insurance company would decide whether or not they want to continue to cover that person so it kind of works in both ways where it's sort of like if you choose not to follow the rules, your insurance company will drop you and you will literally have zero protection from anyone else in society, hmm. which would act as a pretty good incentive. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of cold and cruel. And it's like, well, yeah, I can see your point. It's kind of kind of nice to have this idea that there's this one sort of force that protects everybody, regardless of how much money they make or where they live in society. And it's like, OK, well, that's, yeah, that's a good idea. But I guess it, a system that can be corrupted as well. I mean, I think we're fortunate up here because the standards for policing up here are just so much higher than they are in other places. So we tend to get much better quality law enforcement where they tend to be able to think a little bit better. They Mm -hmm. have to have discretion. The laws are written in such a way where it's like, you know, cops can solve problems. But I think that system might be starting to fall apart as well, unfortunately. And I think we need to learn to sort of police ourselves. But our our rules are written in such a way like the Police Services Act says that, you know, the police have to be representative of their their communities and all that stuff. So you don't have big disparities between who the police are and who the people are that they are policing. They tend to come from the same general towns and all that kind of stuff. So that's written right into the law. I mean, how well that actually works in practice, I couldn't tell you. But, you know, it seems to be the case that we have... uh, Yeah, pretty good law enforcement up here. Obviously, no system is going to be perfect. But how it would work voluntarily is, yeah, you would have private companies that would offer these same kind of services. And I suppose at the risk of being dropped by your insurance company would be a pretty good incentive to not commit crime in the first place. So if you were to have a system like that, you were to have a reasonably homogenous population and not too much income disparity, yeah, I think a system like that could probably work. But, I mean, if you had huge disparities in income, if you had huge disparities in IQ and background and values, like, I'm not really sure that would work. So,
1: I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends, like, which area, like, it would be it be used in. Like, there'd be a difference from, like, having it in, like, Scarborough and having it here in, in like, you know, somewhere near Barrie or whatever. Yeah, right? up
0: in the middle of nowhere, there's... uh different uh different people there's fewer people you know Mm -hmm. there's not uh that same density of people going on so yeah like i think there's a different way of going about doing things up here yeah yeah but uh the rule of law i think that's that's an important thing to preserve but maybe tweak it in such a way that we can hopefully mitigate some of those corrupting forces a little bit now for sure one of the other things that i think is important is due process and I think this one has been under assault for quite some time, especially right around now where it's sort of like if somebody makes an accusation of a crime, then that accusation sort of becomes the proof in and of itself and we convict these people without any sort of due process. Uh, we see that a lot going on down in the States and in the media, but we're also starting to see it up here um, where a lot of the police forces are now going to be publishing the names uh, of charged drunk drivers. So people that, haven't wow. been, people that haven't been convicted, they've just been charged. Oh, okay. And I can see their point, right? They might want to say, well, this will act as an extra deterrent because, you know, these numbers are rising. And it's like, okay, well, fair enough. I mean, if this is not a problem that's going down, because if it was going down, this would probably be a little bit less acceptable, right? Because, mm-hmm. look, this problem is already going away. We don't need these extra measures. But it's like, if this problem is getting worse, it's like, well, fuck. Like, <laughs> if people aren't doing the right what they should be doing, it's like, well, shit, then the rest of us have to suffer for it.
1: <laughs> so I mean I'm I'm
0: running through a ride stop program almost every night on my way home from work. Almost every single night. And it's, you know what, to be honest, like they're like they're super friendly. They they don't keep you for very long. It's sort of like, hey, how's it going? Where are you coming from? Work? Have you had anything to drink? Nope. Okay, have a great night. And you're in and out of there in like ten seconds. So yeah. I, it's very hard for me to complain about, you know, these guys are out there, it's freezing cold, like they're stopping everybody on their way through just to make sure there's no drunks. It's like fair enough. Like I, I get that that maybe have become a necessary intrusion in order to stop people from just getting shit-faced and getting on the road, which in this day and age seems so stupid. Like, why anybody would... Oh, I suppose you could make that, you know, the same argument on any sort of maladaptive behavior, but it's, like, not only you putting your life at risk, but driving, like, a 3,000-pound vehicle in the snow when you're shit-faced and there's other people around. Like, I don't know. I don't know how people justify that to themselves. You know?
1: What do you think? yeah i mean i think it's i think it's partly um a matter of convenience as well fair enough rather yeah. than getting a cab or something just taking you know, like how am i gonna get my car yeah. tomorrow something like that yeah not that i want to uh <laughs> exactly justify that but um well
0: no it's important to understand what those underlying causes might be yeah, right yeah yeah but even up here it's like there'll be people in, on Facebook that are like listen if you don't want to drink and drive but you sort of found yourself in that situation like text this number and like my wife and I will come, we'll get you and your car and we'll drive both of them home.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like,
0: listen, it's like worst case scenario. Like you don't have to think about getting a cab home and then another one back there the next day to get your car Mm -hmm. and we'll do all that in one shot and we don't charge anything for it. So it's sort of like, you know, there, there are these community initiatives that are like really trying to prevent drinking and driving. So it's like, if you have that in a community, the state enforcement might not be as necessary.
1: Yeah, and that's a great solution. It is a
0: great solution, but it's like maybe we could have both, I guess. I mean, I don't think anybody really likes to go through these ride checkpoints, but they're like they're as painless as they could possibly be.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. I,
0: th- I think they, you know, nobody, even the cops probably don't really like to have to intrude on people, but they have a job to do and they don't want to see anyone get killed drinking and driving. I don't think anybody does. Like, I don't think there's right. any. I don't think there are any drinking and driving advocates out there that we're fighting against here. No. You know, there's not people out there picketing and being like, "I demand <laughs> the right to drink and drive." You, you fucking statist fucks. It's like, yeah. Listen, we 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 all get it. It's not a good idea. <laughs> so. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, now it's like if you want to get an Uber around here, like it's uh, it's pretty cheap if you want to do that, or it's. Uh, Like my wife and I have the system where if we're going to go partying and we know we're going to be there for four hours, whoever has had more drinks at the end of one hour gets to drink. And whoever doesn't has to stop drinking, wait out the four hours drinking only soft drinks, and then has to drive.
1: Hmm. Okay. But there's a limit,
0: right? Like for me and at my body weight, I know I can drink three standard drinks. So that'll be one. 12-ounce beer, one 8-ounce glass of wine, or a shot and a half of liquor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one standard drink is how much you can process in your liver per hour. Mm-hmm. So I can have three drinks in the first hour, and then I'll be sober four hours later.
1: Hmm. Okay. Because it'll
0: it'll have completely eliminated yeah. by that point. So yeah. I know I'll be 100% good to go. But... Uh, yeah, you just kind of have to plan ahead like that, right? It's like, okay, if we're going somewhere and we know we're going to be drinking, because I mean, nobody drinks by surprise. You know, it's not like people show up, so we're like, oh, there's alcohol here. It's like, <laughs> what, what, what is this? It's It tastes kind of funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. drinking? Like, people, I don't think it's an education thing anymore, right? But I, So, trying to figure out what those underlying causes are, and, you know, it's probably something stupid. Like, people are, yeah, they're just lazy. They don't want to have to pick up their car the next day. Like, just dumb excuses for doing
1: something so so dangerous. And also the lack of, uh, inhibition you feel that you do that would
0: also be a factor, right? You're talking about, it's like, well, what is it about these, you know, in uninhibited people or whatever, like they're so, they seem so loose thinking. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like almost like, that's like a symptom of the very thing we're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I yeah. guess it's a sort of a self perpetuating thing. It's like, here's a chemical that not only fucks up your ability to drive, but it also makes you feel like that's not really a big deal. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay, (laughs) so how does this
0: problem come about? It's like, how does this problem not come about way more often? (laughs) No, I think we should probably acknowledge the things that we're doing right, at least. Mm -hmm. So next up, I think, is going to be uh, an interesting one uh, that we'll probably have to explore in a lot more depth uh, down the road. And this is going to be the preservation of Judeo-Christian values. So this is going to be the sort of ethical and moral substructure that forms the very foundation of our civilization and i'll tell you over the last few years i've kind of as i tried to refine the atheist arguments a little bit and kind of found them lacking i sort of found Mm. myself walking in the substructure of our civilization seeing where everything came from and discovering this like ancient sewer system that was made by this ancient race called christian people and this other race called the judeo people that were like what christians were before or something Mm -hmm. like that and it's like Mm -hmm. oh there's a lot of history here and it's like yeah just a couple of thousand years no big deal Yeah, yeah so there's a there's definitely a lot there but the uh the kind of ethical and moral stuff that we sort of take for granted now when you look back through history there's a lot of places that didn't really take that same kind of stuff for granted so i think there are there are certain dues that need to be paid there and i think coming around a little bit and realizing that yeah these are things that are definitely going to be necessary to actually preserve what's left of our civilization. We might as well start from where it all began, right? Yeah. So our notions of things like fairness and justice, these are things that came from that Judeo Christian ethic a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, these are, you know, just critical principles that we need in order to help our society, you know, run effectively pretty much yeah. and if um things like fairness and justice are taken for granted then you know it's like what do we <laughs> well how do we come to, to determine what those things were in the first place
0: you know what i mean mm-hmm. where does that come from mm-hmm. what about the instantiation of the individual over the group right where it's sort of we can say that okay yeah majority rule might be important In quote unquote democracy, but at the end of the day, if 10 people need organ transplants, we would Mm. say that harvesting one individual to feed those organ transplant needs would probably be a pretty heinous act. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, there's this whole utilitarian, more people are saved by killing one person and taking all their organs to give to these other people. It's like, but we still wouldn't consider that to be morally acceptable because, you know, individuals and the rights that they're given by their creator so to speak
1: yeah Where each person has a certain divinity
0: exactly and it's inalienable you mm-hmm. can't sell it off on the free market it's just sort of part of who you are in a in a, in a way that doesn't really belong to you you know what i mean
1: can you what i yeah well them? so
0: it, it's like uh what do the christians say that it's sort of your you're made in god's image okay and there's a certain part of that 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 isn't really like say you're born tall you're born short it's not like you can really be proud of either one because you didn't really have any say in the matter okay in the same way your divinity as an individual is not really something you have a say in either it's sort of just it's given to you it's given to you in a sense right because i don't really know what other words to use to describe how that process would work (laughs) right yeah
1: yeah
0: you know when people are born we all sort of instantiate human rights Onto this person. I know throughout history there's been certain experiments where they said, okay, well, why don't we try giving human rights to these people, but then not these people? And it's like, well, what's the difference? It's like, oh, well, fuck, what's the difference? Okay, well, these people are like, you know, this color and these other people are this color. It's like, all right, let, let's try that. We'll, we'll just take away rights from these people. And it's like later on, they're like, yeah, that, that, that was kind of stupid. <laughs> it didn't really make sense to begin with. I know it was kind of kind of flimsy. It's like, okay, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we say if they're part like from this part of the world they don't have human rights? Oh, like use geography. I remember geography from high school. We'll use that to instantiate who has human rights or not. And then that doesn't really work out either because it's like, okay, well what's the difference? It's like, well, they were born in this circle here. And we were born over in this circle here. So we have rights and they don't. Well that doesn't really make sense either. We have to have these principles that apply to everybody across all time. Otherwise, they don't really have any logical consistency to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah.
1: There's no substantial... There's I, no
0: underlying first principle yeah,
1: yeah, 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 to
0: draw that conclusion, right? And that's where, uh, you know, I think philosophy, a founding principle of this very show. You know, this yes. love of wisdom and this evaluation of arguments. This is going to be... Uh, important because frankly we don't really know enough we can't make any recommendations on what to do about this problem we're just trying to identify what the hell the problem is to begin with so i think it's so formulating that question is going to be more important than trying to formulate any answers you know yeah. if you don't have the right question well it doesn't matter what the answer is it's not going to do anything for you until you get the right question so
1: yeah philosophy gives us those tools to help formulate Form, yeah. that good question. <laughs> exactly.
0: So that's why I'm thinking as we work our or you know wade our way through these crazy issues over the next several months it's going to be uh, yeah, important to evaluate these arguments on their own terms. Figure out what what we can keep and what we must discard for the sake of the civilization, Tim. Separate the wheat
1: from the chaff, right? That's
0: right. So, philosophy is going to keep coming up as as well now. One of the other things that we're going to have to touch on here, and I know it's going to be a touchy subject for some, but don't worry, they have plenty of this, and this is faith, right? So our favorite region in Far Cry 5, <laughs> faith region, mm-hmm. or whatever it was called, anyway. <laughs> so it's important to have faith in something, because what do we have if we have no faith in anything, Tim?
1: We have nihilism. Nihilism!
0: Oh, these nihilistic people that are like, there's no such thing as a hierarchy of values, and that's true, and it's important for you to accept it as true, except there's no such thing as true.
1: Or no such thing as morality.
0: Or no no such thing as anything, man. It's just not going to matter in a million years. It's like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Maybe not, but at the end of the day, if you're trying to convince me that it's important, you believe some things are more important than other things. And that that which is important is preferable to that which is not important. So you're already in sort of manifesting a hierarchy of values by even having preferences to begin with. So trying to convince people that nihilism is a good idea seems self-contradictory. Does that make sense?
1: That makes sense to me. Yeah. So if
0: we could sort of paint nihilism as the enemy for a moment, and if you happen to be a nihilist, well, I'm sorry, but it doesn't really mean anything because nothing means anything, right? <laughs> so don't worry. Nothing's changed. <laughs> but, you know, people have faith in certain narratives, right? Certain worldviews, political orientations, group affiliations. People have faith, right? But it's just only one if it's like a religious faith and it sort of gets poo-pooed in today's day and age. And I'll tell you why I think it is. I think it's people like to score free intellectual points, sort of like these like bonus free spaces on the bingo lottery of IQ, where you can sort of. <laughs> appear to be smarter than you are by claiming to not have faith in anything. It's like, "Oh man, this guy's really thought about it and he's realized that the whole system of religion is just a bunch of a bunch of hooey. Wow, this guy's must be really a, a deep thinker." It's like, yeah, well they could just be an nihilist that just watches too much television and listens to too much of the mainstream media and never really thinks for themselves and this just happens to be the end result.
1: I think there's also like an arrogant and arrogance, too, that yeah. can assume that people who believe in a faith are too simple or or dumb or something, yeah. right, to, yeah. to go any deeper. but
0: and That's like the projection we talked about on the shadow episode, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, it's
0: really bad to be dumb. So rather than actually thinking about these rather deep topics, I'm just going to think that everybody who believes in them is dumb. That I don't have to apply that label to myself. It's kind of sad, really. Mm -hmm. But I think faith is important. You know? The particulars of what one must have faith in, well, I suppose that could be up for debate. If you really want to debate that sort of thing, I mean, it seems to be rather personal for people. But having no faith at all, I think that's probably the worst option. Yeah. Does that make sense? This whole nihilism route, where it's like there are no transcendent narratives there are no hierarchy of values nothing has any meaning because everything is going to be meaningless in a thousand years it's like well maybe i mean what if socrates thought like that i mean it's been like two thousand years and we still remember who this guy is So i mean it, it's clearly not self-evident that what you do now is not going to be important in a thousand years right that doesn't seem to be self-evident at all i mean it might be for some people you know like if you choose one coffee shop over another, that decision is probably not going to matter in a thousand years. But I don't think that's really the point. I think your decision to orient yourself towards something better rather than something worse, I think that's something that can matter in a thousand years, especially when those decisions are taken collectively. Absolutely. When you have a bunch of people coming together and making really bad decisions, it's like, well, a thousand years from now, yeah, that, that can look pretty shitty. <laughs> that's a long time. That's a lot of bad decisions. A 1,000 years, you know, and if they're being made constantly. But what about a 1,000 years of good decisions? What the hell is that going to look like? I think that's even harder to imagine than a 1,000 years of bad decisions. It's almost beyond imagining, right? Because we know what happens when shit goes really bad. Like, we've seen the burnt-out wreckages of Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We know what happens when things go really, really bad. So what things could look like when they look really good. I don't know. I'm thinking, like, SimCity. You know, those uh, those archaeological biodomes. I'm, okay. I'm thinking something like that. But that's just because that's as far as my imagination can extend.
1: SimCity. Do you think nihilism might be like a symptom of depression or the other way around? Because
0: Where would the cart go before the horse? Oh, that one. <laughs> does nihilism predict depression or does depression predict nihilism? Or is there some third variable that influences
1: both? Because I think if one gets, if one does get depressed, it's they much easier feel, them to fall into nihilism. Yeah, and the nihilism will perpetuate the depression because
0: there's not really much incentive to get out of it. Mm. Because being depressed is no worse than not being depressed because there is no hierarchy of values.
1: Right. So it's like, why
0: would you get treatment for it? Why would you seek help? Why would you talk about your problems?
1: Yeah, you if, know, if you didn't want <laughs> to if there's it. no reason to do that, then you know yeah. if it's not
0: gonna matter in a thousand years that you're depressed, why would you ever, you know, do anything about it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I
0: think nihilism is a trap that people can fall into because I think it's sort of a it's almost like an intellectual laziness in a sense. You know, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, oh perfect, I found this like one kind of worldview that lets me completely get away with not doing anything to change my situation. Yay! you know now i can feel totally like non-hypocritical and totally consistent because i believe there is no hierarchy of values it's like well do you believe that being consistent is important <laughs> you know what I mean? because if
1: you do yeah or do you believe anything you do matters because
0: <laughs> if you don't then it's like well why would you do anything or have any preference for one thing <laughs> over another right you know if you have preferences yeah. you have to acknowledge some sort of
1: value value hierarchy right and if
0: you're saying that it's something's good or bad you're comparing it to some sort of ideal so you believe there's some kind of ideal to compare Mm -hmm. it to otherwise you would have nothing to orient your preferences towards right so yeah nihilism is this brutally self-contradictory system that i just can't seem to abide
1: and i think the main way that you get out of it is to find what What means something to you to, you know, pursue meaning Mm -hmm. as well as something Peterson would would advocate for.
0: Yeah, because that'll be sort of, it'll generate its own kind of happiness out of it as you pursue Mm -hmm. towards it. Mm -hmm. Because that seems to be how the mechanism works. You know, the dopamine reward system seems to work on anticipation. So as we stay on that path, that's where you get those little dopamine hits from. And finally, I think... One of the important things about faith is the binding orientation of a unified moral matrices. And if that word salad doesn't make any sense, Jonathan Haidt breaks it down quite nicely in The Righteous Mind. And in The Happiness Hypothesis, we're orienting ourselves towards one sort of good, an idol of some kind, is at least a better option than not doing that at all, at least in terms of group cohesion, right? Right? Mm -hmm. A group that has one unifying set of values that faces them all in the same direction will operate as a better phalanx than a group of people running around in all different directions. So I I think faith can have a very important effect like that on the group level. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the, I guess, the psychological impacts of having that binding feeling at the individual level. You know, when people feel that they're part of something that's bigger than themselves, I think that's... A good way to help deal with the drudgery and suffering of life. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as much as we've tried to insulate ourselves from the unmitigated suffering... I mean, look at us up here in Canada. it's For like half the year, it's perpetually below freezing. You know what I mean? Without the ingenuity of those who came before us, the very blood in our veins would freeze where it stands. But it doesn't. And now we feel comfortable. And now we feel entitled to have liquid blood. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And... I can say just from my personal experience that uh being in certain being part of a spiritual uh, group it does it just helps to have that i guess that sense of support and just being in contact you know with other people and like you said they're all geared towards you know figuring out that journey yeah figure out the journey and you know yeah how to, uh, how to get through it and to, you know, share with each other um, uh, uh, their own journeys and, you know, mm-hmm. work through that. So. Absolutely. And speaking of
0: working through the journey, the next topic is perhaps one of the more contentious. The idea of family values and motherhood. Two values mm-hmm. have been under attack perhaps more than any other, probably almost as much as free speech itself is the idea that somehow some women might not be as career-oriented as others and may want to stay home and raise a family. And the fact that that is now being cast as some sort of failing of some kind, as if raising the next generation of people is somehow a less-than-important endeavor. you know? Oh, don't worry, just leave it up to the government to raise your children. Don't have any input yourselves. I mean, it's not like that's going to have any negative impacts or anything like that. (laughs) So I think third wave feminism is probably most responsible for this. And for those who don't know, the way the wave seems to work is the first wave feminism, I believe, was getting women the right to vote. The second wave was getting women equal pay in like 1962. And then third wave is basically everything that we see now. And it's, some of it is even being classified as fourth wave, where mm-hmm. it becomes this sort of, you know, anytime there's any disparity between men and women that happens to favor men, Mm -hmm. it's a problem. But anytime there's one that happens to favor women, it's completely ignored. And this is sort of a, what the idea of feminism has become. But anytime you criticize that idea, then it's sort of, oh, you hate all women. It's like, well, we're talking about advocating for motherhood here. So I don't think I hate all women. And, (laughs) And I'm sure my wife would disagree. So the idea that, they would cast this kind of dispersion. I think it's more of a way of stifling conversation as a way of preventing the ideas and the narratives from being challenged because they know if they have to defend them on their own merits, they're not going to survive that kind of onslaught of reason and evidence and logic. So they have to resort to ad hominem attacks and straw man arguments where they're saying, saying okay, well, you know, you saying that there's a pay gap between men and women, despite that being demonstrably not the case like it being based on sexism or something like that, that immediately means that you must hate women. And then they'll take you through a series of mental gymnastics to get you to that point. And it's sort of like, well, the disparity sort of disappears if you look at college age women that aren't married with children. And then they actually tend to out earn men by about 8%. But it's mm. like We all know that women are the ones that give birth in our society and they take time off to do that. And that tends to have consequences in the workforce. But then, this all ties back into that assault on motherhood, right? It's like, oh my God, them taking a hit on their career—it's, it's totally not worth it. It's like, yeah, but they're raising, raising children. You know, these are going to be the people that are taking care of us when we're older. So it would probably be better if they're not sociopaths, right? So maybe we could stop shitting on motherhood so much because it's probably one of the most important jobs mm-hmm. in our society. So maybe we could take it a little bit more seriously and stop shitting on all these women that choose to do it. It's like, it's one of the most important jobs, maybe.
1: We could try to treat
0: it with a little bit more respect and st- stop treating it like a second-class job. Like, oh, you never made it in the working world? Oh, you must just be a poor mother. It's like, yeah, that sounds like a bunch of bullshit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember my sociology professor, he used to um, talk about some experiences, like going to like a dinner party, and if a woman revealed that she was like, a homemaker then that was frowned upon essentially and that you uh, got like the record
0: screech like (laughs) you're a what oh sorry we didn't know (laughs) yeah it's like such condescension
1: (laughs) and that never made sense to me and uh i think i i know i know why even better now i mean it's you know it's it's an important role it you know it's it's key for um, mothers to be in contact with children for the you know very first years of their life Those formative
0: years because what did peterson say between the ages of two and four like are super critical like if your child isn't socialized by the age of four they're mm. they're basically going to have their problem solved by the penal system you know it's going to be the courts that sort them out until they're about 27 and then if they're lucky enough to be employable after that maybe they can scrape together some semblance of a life but it's like no, you got to get them sorted by, like, two to four. That's, like, super critical. Super exactly. critical. So I think the idea that we're trying to disparage that and say, oh, yeah, just put them in daycare. Don't worry about it. The state can handle it. It's like, no, the state is has these kids for the first 18 years of their life, and they come out without any marketable skills whatsoever. You know, so before we go defending public institutions, let's see what the actual results are. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, so... uh see here next up individualism i think we talked on a little bit more before about how we elevate the individual above the group mm-hmm. and then this is what the i guess in contrast to isolationism which i think is how individualism is often straw sort of saying oh well if you believe in the individual you believe that groups are bad it's like no they're just two different levels of analysis we're not saying one is superior to the other or any such nonsense right so
1: important distinction
0: uh, and part of individualism would be the liberty to pursue whatever one's own path would happen to be, you know, without any sort of interference, in a sense. Now, I think society definitely has that tyrannical element because there are certain things we definitely do not want people to do, as we've covered before with the criminal stuff. But uh, when it comes to liberty, the idea is we want that to be as non-restrictive as possible, you know, as few rules as necessary to kind of keep the ship moving along.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: freedom from arbitrary or tyrannical control
1: as you were saying right so we want obviously we want individual freedom and we need to watch we need to watch how certain policies um i guess are being enforced mm-hmm. and you know We don't want to, um, it's like you said, we don't want too many things in the way of somebody pursuing a good, you know. A good policy. Yeah. Or someone pursuing a good life in general too. And um, if we can figure out what that means, we
0: can figure <laughs> out, you know, how to yeah. least be restrictive around it. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's the idea of, yeah, what, what what is a good amount of tyranny? Well, okay, <laughs> let's let's be tyrannical against murderers. Okay, let's, we can all agree on that. That's a little bit of tyranny that we could just all sort of agree that is a good idea. And I think this will be a, a good segue to what the next episode is going to be, because we want to revisit The Shadow, because it seems to be our most popular topic so far, mm-hmm. accounting for pretty much half the downloads thus far. So it seems like people have a real interest in exactly how to incorporate their dark side. So I think one of the things we want to talk about next week or next month or whenever we happen to get around to this next damn episode, is going to be what parts of <laughs> our civilization that are perhaps not so politically correct do we need to bring back? What elements mm. of the, these shadow elements that we've tried to suppress, what do you think would be the best ones to
1: keep or perhaps bring back? Nice. I think that would be a great our, thing to explore, for sure. Because there's so many there's so many domains, too, that the shadow operates as well. So
0: Yeah, for example, I think we could probably talk about Social ostracism that's become Mm. kind of faux pas. It's like, well, we have to be nice to everybody all the time for no reason. It's like, okay, (laughs) well, what about people who are dicks? It's like, well, can we be dicks back to them? Well, that would be impolite. It's like, well, yeah, it might be impolite, but maybe if we're dicks to them, they wouldn't like it and they wouldn't be stopped. Maybe they'd stop being such a dick to everybody else. It's like, well, maybe, but does that justify being a dick? I don't know. Let's find out on our next episode.
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, we got about an hour here, so we're going to uh, cut it off. But thanks again for tuning in to this much-bladed Christmas episode here on These Sorted Skeptics. I hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
1: And we will see you soon on the next episode. Have a good one.